Welcome to Objection to the Rules, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. Today is Friday, December 4th, and this episode will begin airing on Sunday, December 6th. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How's it going, everyone? Good. Doing, doing all right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm, we're... It's been uh-huh. a minute. It's been a minute. Yeah. We took last week off. Well, the first week we've taken off in a long time. Yeah, I, I know it felt weird. I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it, did, it felt weird. Yeah, it's it felt weird not connecting with you guys over the over the break. How was everybody's yeah. holiday? It was good. It um it's a little bit, you know, anxiety producing, I think like for most people in the country. Yeah. Just not sure, you know, trying to be as safe as possible while also um trying to stay sane. Mm-hmm. You know. Absolutely. I I was at home. I just I cooked for myself and it was it worked out pretty good. It was just me and the cat. All right. That works. I uh, cooked with my small bubble of friends that have frequented. um, We've frequented each other's company over this time. So same group. It was only four of us, but I even gave my dog a turkey leg. So it was a good time. So let's get into it. This week, we'll be talking about the reality behind food delivery apps, General Motors dropping its support for Trump's climate rollbacks, the abolition amendment by Democrats to send to end involuntary servitude for prisoners, regional elections in Cameroon, and much more. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Emily, take it away. Thank you. All right. So this story comes from a November 30th New York Times article by Kimiko DeFreitas Tamura, Tamara, um, titled Food Delivery Apps Are Booming. Their workers are often struggling. And then with the subtitle, um, delivery drivers have been essential to feeding New York while boosting sales for companies like DoorDash and Uber. But they say work conditions have gotten worse. The article explains, quote, with hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers out of work and the city's unemployment rate at 13.2%, many desperate people have turned to working for food delivery apps like DoorDash, Uber Eats, and Grubhub, which have seen huge demand from um, from customers who are working from home. While delivery drivers have been essential to feeding New Yorkers and keeping them safe, their working conditions, already precarious before the pandemic, have gotten worse. Uh, delivery people are dealing with, oh, end quote. Um, <laughs> delivery people are dealing with not only greater exposure from COVID between restaurants and the private homes they deliver to, but bicycle theft and assault um, as crime rates in New York in New York City have gone up um, is also something they're dealing with, as well as this little nugget, quote, some workers also complain that many restaurants deny them the use of their bathroom out of health concerns, forcing them to carry plastic bottles. Um end quote, which is just humiliating and unsanitary and unsafe. Um, And on top of new hardships caused by the pandemic, these workers are still dealing with some the same old bullshit. Quote, because the drivers are independent workers, they are not entitled to a minimum wage, overtime, or any other benefits like health insurance. Undocumented immigrants who are not eligible uh, for unemployment or federal coronavirus assistance make up the bulk of the workforce in New York. 
In 2018, oh, and, um, and quote, and in 2018, the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission, quote, adopted a $17.22 per hour minimum wage for drivers for ride-hailing apps like Uber and Lyft, but it does not apply to delivery workers. Efforts in New York State to provide more rights to gig workers by reclassifying them as employees have stalled in the legislature. And then there's the very pay structure of these jobs. Quote, some, deli- some food delivery apps say drivers can earn as much as $22 per hour, including tips, though many drivers said they never earned anywhere close to that much. The article highlights two examples of how the payment can work in reality. One driver made only $11 over the course of four hours of work, and another made $32 over the course of six and a half hours. Um, part of the issue, of course, is that they are not paid hourly. Drivers for food, quote, drivers for food delivery apps are typically paid per delivery, depending on the estimated duration and distance of the trip, plus tips. Um, And just a note, again, that's $11 for four hours of work, not $11 per hour. Um, Wow. Yeah, which is bad. So, and then, of course, again, those tips themselves are an issue. Um, The reporter interviewed food delivery app drivers who said that they don't get paid all of their tips all of the time and that the tips are sometimes deducted from their pay. And that's not a brand new issue either. Uh, DoorDash, which owns Caviar 2, quote, came under fire last year after it was revealed that tips were being used to subsidize its payments to workers. The company recently reached a $2.5 million settlement with prosecutors in Washington, D.C., after being accused of mishandling consum- uh, misleading consumers over how it tipped its workers, uh, end quote. It's ugly, and according to those interviewed in this article, it still goes on. One person interviewed for the story, Gustavo Adche, was a construction worker until he lost his job during New York City's lockdown in the spring. Uh, And that's when he started working for food delivery apps. He, quote, said he was blocked by one app, Relay, uh, which is called Relay, after he complained that he had not received his tips. They don't care, he said. And, of course, the companies are able to profit in a big way off of legally not having to pay either the $15 an hour minimum wage in New York City or any benefits, especially during the pandemic when delivery orders are booming. Uber Eats raked in $1.45 billion between July and September, up from only $645 million from that same time period in 2019. Uh, And that's more than double the amount from last year. Uh, In the first nine months of this year, DoorDash had tripled the number of orders and tripled the revenue compared with the same time period in 2019. And then, of course, while all that's going on, uh, one driver even said that he had to pay Postmates $65 out of pocket for a tote bag to carry orders um, on his own. So as to be expected, the various food delivery app companies made statements contradicting the grim image of work conditions for delivery people. Quote, DoorDash and Uber said they, they had provided extra help to delivery drivers during the pandemic, including offering sick pay to those who had gotten the virus. DoorDash, the nation's uh, largest food delivery app, said it provided masks, gloves, hand sanitizer, and wipes to drivers, as well as access to low-cost telemedicine appointments. But uh, those are all small things in the face of a system that doesn't provide a living wage to its workers, uh, whether they're an independent contractor or not. Wow, that's awful, because those apps always add on so much extra charges as well, and you would think that they would go to the delivery service. They do not. The they go right. Nope, they go right to the the uh, bottom line or investors or whatever. That's awful. Yeah. It's really awful. And on top of that, you know, it's not only 
it's misleading. Like there's, there's certain things where you assume, oh, this service fee is going to go to the restaurant or it's going to go to the, uh, the delivery person, but it doesn't, it goes to the comp, the app itself, the, wow. the tech company. Yeah. That's super misleading too. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's sad because obviously we're forced to stay in our homes to be safe. So we're all depending on this at least once a week or something, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yes, that's pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me like it's, it's always good if you can tip in cash, that's always been the case, but especially now, mm-hmm. Uh, if you can just, if you're going to be doing delivery, maybe budget that in, like leave no tip on the app, but make sure you have enough to tip generously in cash for whoever is coming so you know that they'll get it. Yeah, that's a great point, Jasmine. Absolutely. Um, you know, and again, like you have to tip, like period. I don't, I don't know if there's still people out there that don't, because it's optional in most of these apps to tip delivery drivers. Um but tip and tip well. Um, and again, yeah, in cash if possible. That was a great point, Jasmine. I was reading something earlier this week about how the pandemic has only highlighted that capitalism like benefits the rich always. Like the pa- or the pandemic, you know, like the rich pe- like these big companies are only getting bigger and richer and then their employee like these people are only like suffering more because, you know, there's fewer jobs available. So a lot of people are turning to this kind of work, but because there's like a glut of workers, like working in these systems, there's like not enough work to go around to was also something the article was highlighting, um, which sucks. Yeah. That's really disheartening um, because it's hard enough out here, you know, and I noticed that a lot of people are taking, you know, any sort of work they can find just because it's, you know, the traditional method of trying to find work is just not working. So there's more people out here in the street doing this work. And it's just, you know, it's unsettling to know that it's such hard work too. You know, I mean, I know, Emily, I know that you have worked in the service industry as well as I, I'm not sure um, if you have Jasmine, but man, I've yeah. never been so tired and exhausted after a, a day of service um, to other Absolutely, people. Yeah. It's just really, really yeah, hard and work I mean, as well. Some of these people who are turning to delivery drive being delivery drivers as well, like used to work, or I think at least some of the people used to work in kitchens and restaurants where they were making the minimum wage of $15 an hour. Um, but with all the restaurants shutting down, you know, and the, the restrictions they're having to, you know, they're losing those jobs and having to turn to jobs like this, which are much more inconsistent. I want to say, like, I know um, one suggestion people are making is, like, if you know places in your area, like, there's local restaurants and stuff, like the Chinese food spot near me, where just to call them directly, as opposed to using the app, but then it's, these things are so difficult, because when you do something like that, then that's taking that's taking even more work away from the people that are working through the app, you know, because you don't want to support the app. You then end up making it where there's even less work for the people that are using the app to try to survive. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's, it's frustrating because there's only so much that you can do as an individual person, like mm-hmm. with your choices, because there's such high level structural, yeah. like fucked up issues, just either way somebody is getting shafted and it's not the right person that's a great point too because the apps themselves like are not only charging you service fees 
I um I know that things like Seamless can charge the restaurant itself like something like thirty like the restaurant thirty thirty percent. It's bad. Like yeah. Seamless Grubhub. The restaurant yes, the restaurant to has to pay apps. so much of the cost of their their in their like what they receive for an order of food that they often just break even on an order like it doesn't really make them money to be on seamless it's more like they hope that their name gets out there or that people just know about the restaurant with it like it really is so fucked up <laughs> yeah i mean i i do think that it if you of the two options i do think it's better to know what's in your area and call them directly so they directly yeah. get the business but it's not a it's perfect not. And, solution and if yeah. and if you can't pay for delivery just go pick it up yeah you know if it's yeah, 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 you know take a short walk and get it if you can yes. yeah tip. definitely tip at the door that's been something i've been like trying yeah. to teach people i know that like they're like oh like for a pickup order like why should i tip or like at all or this much and I'm just like because they're these people are like put you know sometimes putting their life on the line to be in this workplace to make this food for you during a pandemic so you should just give them extra money because that dollar means more to them than it means to you yeah they might have like a pooling right. system totally you know where everybody gets a little bit of a bump as long as everyone is tipping instead of it just going being based off of an individual maybe being more mobile and able to do more pickups or something getting more than someone else totally That's a great uh, point. so that was that story which is a bit of a bummer um you know everyone just hold on we have good news at the end of the show but uh we're gonna throw it we have a bunch of updates from the station and jasmine has one for us right now so december 1st was giving tuesday um it's a global generosity movement that unleashes the power of people and organizations to transform their communities and the world. At a time when we are all experiencing the pandemic, generosity is what brings people of all races, faiths, and political views together across the globe. Generosity gives everyone the power to make a positive change in the lives of others and is a fundamental value anyone can act on. Radio Free Brooklyn Incorporated is a 501c3 nonprofit community organization whose mission is to empower Brooklyn's underserved local communities by providing active learning and media practices and to amplify their voices through a global internet radio platform and public art. We also support initiatives that support musicians and artists through these difficult times and provide media literacy programs to those who need it the most. And during this time, guys, we def desperately need your help. Your monthly pledge or one-time donation allows us to continue bringing you community media and art. So if you enjoy listening to us every week, please, please, please consider donating to the radio station so we can keep bringing you the news. Please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash donate and give whatever you can. Awesome. Thank you so much, Emily and Jasmine, uh, for that story and that update. So we're going to go ahead and jump into our first musical break. We have a nice mix of music for you today. Our first track is a dope jazz record called Nail Timnata Nail Jazz. I know that's a very interesting name. Um, it's by uh, two individuals, Katie and Kayan and OK. So check it out and stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news segment. So information for this story today was drawn from NPR. Um, The article is titled Democrats Push Abolition Amendment to Fully Erase Slavery from U.S. Constitution. So lawmakers on Capitol Hill are pushing to remove a so-called slavery loophole from the United States Constitution. With the adoption and ratification of the 13th Amendment 155 years ago, the practice of slavery formally ended in the country, sort of, but it did not strip away all aspects of involuntary servitude. A joint resolution dubbed the Abolition Amendment, which was introduced by Democrats in the House and Senate on Wednesday, seeks to correct this. It would remove the, quote, punishment clause from the amendment, which effectively allows members of prison populations to be used for cheap and free labor. The measure has more than a dozen co-sponsors. However, no Republicans in either chamber are currently signed on to the measure. So the minimum estimated annual value of incarcerated labor in U.S. prisons and jails is $2 billion, according to the nonprofit Prison Policy Initiative. And as NPR reported in July, companies like Walmart, AT&T, Whole Foods, and Victoria's Secrets have used incarcerated populations for business operations for many years. Article 5 of the Constitution allows for the change in the founding document only after two-thirds majority of both the House and the Senate approve a resolution or by a constitutional convention in which two-thirds of state legislatures vote in support of the measures. Then three-quarters of state legislatures or conventions must approve the change to become federal law. Um, So none of the Constitution's 27 amendments thus far have been proposed by constitutional conventions. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley is one of the leading Democrats for the efforts to amend the Constitution and putting the change into context over his campaign for justice. Um, According to this article, it's unlikely that the effort will be taken up, let alone passed, before the current session of Congress ends in a few weeks. But Merkley told AP that he hopes to reintroduce the legislation after the January session. So even though, these are my sentiments now, even though this is uh, definitely a great initiative, obviously um, the variations of this this chain of events is going to happen state by state, even institution by institution. You know, sometimes when these big, large scale changes like this come down, it takes years uh, for this stuff to really be implemented and Um, enforced within these prison systems. What do you guys think about this amendment and the possibility of it actually becoming reality? I, I mean, I, we we were talking about this right before we started recording. Like I, you know, love the house for all the, the efforts they're making for progressive action, but like (laughs) the Senate is, is, you know, they're not going to really be able to get much done. Um, with the Senate as it currently stands. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 you know, the, the house has been making bold moves for, I feel like a few years now, mm-hmm. but I've sort of stopped like, Stop caring. watching. Right. Yeah. Cause it's like, Oh, good for you guys. But like, it doesn't, you know, it's not really going to be, be effective as of right now where the way things stand is sort of how my emotional state when I hear like really awesome moves like that. But that being said, bringing attention to the issue is also mm-hmm. still really important because I think a lot of people still aren't aware. Um, the, there was the Netflix documentary um, or documentary that I watched on Netflix mm-hmm. about the, thir- the 13th, but um, is what it was called. But Yeah, 13th by Ava DuVernay, yeah, right? Yes. Yeah, Powerful film, by the way. Very much so. I should rewatch it. Honestly, it was within a few years since I watched it, but um, 
yeah, I don't, I, maybe this will help bring more attention to the issue as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it's however many years it's been since the end of um, the Civil War. I think it's true that with the documentary that came out a few years ago and stuff like this in the news, I think it's good to bring more awareness to the fact that slavery is not really gone in this country and it still exists under several forms. So I guess that is a plus, like if it does, you know, shake some people awake to the fact that there is an issue, maybe that will motivate more people to get involved in more grassroots efforts to get it to stop. Because as you're saying, you know, the house can do these things, but it takes so long for any real change to happen. Like by the time it gets up to the highest levels, it's so watered down often. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes it's hard to be super excited about stuff like this, but I do hope it does open more people's eyes. Absolutely. Um, And speaking of the house, I have just uh, another short segment about what the house did today. Uh, So apparently the house passed a bill decriminalizing marijuana at the federal level. Uh, This information is drawn from an article on CNN. And it was actually today that this bill was passed. Um, for the end to the federal prohibition of cannabis. For now, the House is likely to be the last stop of the line for the MORE Act. MORE stands for Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, uh, which was created in 2019. Um, It would effectively legalize cannabis by removing marijuana from the Controlled Substance Act and creating a shared federal state control of cannabis programs, although it doesn't force states to legalize it. Uh, The bill would also reduce barriers to research, solve current banking and tax woes, expunge some cannabis offenses, and further diversify the efforts of the industry. In November, cannabis legalization measures succeeded in a clean sweep at the ballot box, which we did speak about um, on that episode, with voters approving recreational cannabis proposals in Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, and South Dakota, and medical cannabis measures in South Dakota and Mississippi. Now, all but three U.S. states have legalized the medical use of cannabis and 15 states have passed adult use measures. Earlier this week, also, the United Nations Commissions of Narcotic Drugs removed cannabis from its schedule of dangerous drugs, a move that could accelerate a global medical cannabis research legalization efforts. Um, So that decision could affect how the U.S. and the DEA approaches cannabis moving forward. So the House is definitely trying to be radical, trying to shake some things up, uh, which I really don't think this is radical. I think this is so overdue. Um, But nonetheless, it's always good to hear news like this because it's moving along. I mean, slowly but surely, you know, um, these things, these walls are are being shaken and things are are being, um, you know, just thought about and considered in different perspectives. So um, while we obviously have to wait to the big transitions happen in January to really see where a lot of this stuff will go. It's good to see that there are some efforts being made to address these issues. And that is it for my national segment today. So I'm going to pass it to Emily for our next. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you have some feedback? Well, I did. I want to talk about the marijuana a little bit. Oh, go for it. Go for it. Well, it's just been really, it's been wild Emily. <laughs> I mean that is between you want to me share and myself. That's no, right. Well, what I do want to share though is that no, because um, I'm a Jer- New Jersey girl, as we've talked about, and New Jersey in this past election on the ballot, um, the state voted to 
on it. Like it was like a, a, a measure on the ballot and they voted to legalize marijuana and it, you know, which means setting up um, dispensaries throughout the state for like adult use. And my hometown, my t- like Caldwell, West Caldwell, I, I, they're actually two separate towns, but I think it was Caldwell. Um, the the town council voted four to two to open a dispensary in the hometown, which oh, is wild. <laughs> this Supreme Court Justice Alito, let me remind you all, is from my town. Like that's like the kind of like it, my town's like liberal, but like a lot of Trumpers are there too. So it's like pretty exciting stuff. So I just wanted to say like there's there's stuff in the air happening. Like that's pretty crazy. Yeah, I never thought I I'd say that. There's a real big push to let people out that have been jailed for marijuana. Yeah. That, that is part, so, right? it's it's one like you see these legal things popping up in california colorado like wherever and it's so upsetting to see who is profiting off of legal cannabis and who is it's like for something that happened years ago it's like they're locked away in a cage somewhere and it's just yeah it's beyond unfair and and inhumane so i hope that that's like there's a big groundswell to make this stuff retroactive because that has mm-hmm. to happen. Yeah. And, and I will say too, that a lot of these, the people behind these movements are tend to be aware of those injustices. And mm-hmm. I know at least for New Jersey, I've been reading that they won't actually be opening any dispensaries for a year or two because they'll be working out like whatever sort of tax structure or like, or licensing structure that aims to benefit the populations that have been most directly hurt by anti-drug legislation throughout the years. So they're like, there, there are like the people behind these movements are aiming to rectify those past wrongs, which of course, like with people still in jail for that, like that also needs to happen to you. I don't know if that's part of it, but at least financially with future income, they're thinking about that, which is very cool. Yeah. That was definitely talked about in the article, how this will um, obviously make states reconsider a lot of that. And also, you know, what I thought was cool uh, was to drive some of the research behind medical marijuana and its uses for more people and more um, causes. So hopefully, like I said, all of these small ticks on the scale will add up to something greater, but it's definitely good to hear that this has become a, you know, it's turning into a larger conversation, almost a global conversation um, at this point, so that more people could obviously benefit from the changes and and the way that they uh, criminalize drugs. So definitely good information. Anybody else before I pass it back to Emily? (laughs) No, I'm good. (laughs) Awesome. All right, great. So what you got for us, Emily? Alrighty, so I have another announcement from the station, and this is uh, one that we've had for a few weeks now, but it's still very cool. So uh, if you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. Awesome. Thank you for that. We're going to go ahead and jump into our next music break uh, before we get into the world news and a little bit of good news. 
Our next track is called Butter and it's by JJ Adrian. We'll be right back. Oh, 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 
to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and we'll jump right into our world news segment. Jasmine, you're up. So this news article is from usnews.com, even though it's a world story. The title is, As Cameroon Prepares First Regional Election on Sunday, so the day that you're listening to this, Opponents Say It's Too Late, by Josiane Kouagou. So Cameroon is going to hold its first ever regional election today, Sunday, December 6th, as President Paul Bia seeks to quell a four-year separatist insurgency and appease opponents who say he has neglected the provinces for decades. So on Sunday, so today, over 10,000 local representatives will vote to appoint councils in all 10 regions made up of regional delegates and traditional rulers putting into action a 1996 law that promised decentralized government but was never enacted. Government officials say it will give the regions greater say over spending and local governance. They hope it could also end a conflict in the English-speaking West that was sparked by the perceived marginalization of the Anglophone minority. That, um, and you've probably seen hashtags and things like end the Anglophone crisis. The ongoing conflict has killed more than 3,000 people, and it's become the greatest threat to Bia's 40-year presidency of the country, where the official language is French. Critics of these elections say that they come too late, and they offer only the semblance of regional autonomy and does little to dent Bia's power. It could be disrupted. The election might be disrupted by separatist fighters who will call it a fraud and the main opposition parties are boycotting, meaning that the councils are likely going to be stacked by Bia supporters. If I had come in 19, if it had come in 1996, maybe it could have solved the crisis, but we are no longer at that level, said opposition politician and former presidential candidate Joshua Osi. The demands are beyond decentralization. People want to take care of their own territory. The separatist conflict began in 2016 when teachers and lawyers protested against having to work in French. The government cracked down on peaceful marches and armed groups responded with attacks on soldiers and policemen, calling for the creation of an independent state called Ambazonia. Civilians have also been targeted in attacks. Each side blames on the other. A leading separatist named Cho Ayaba said they intend to seize officials organizing Sunday's vote. We have issued an order banning the elections and for anyone collaborating with Cameroon in organizing this fraud to be arrested. So just as a as some background, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners might not be aware, um, I myself have always thought of Cameroon as being part of the Francophone world, but there is um, a minority territory to the Southwest um, that is pre- predominantly English speaking. So way back in the middle of the 19th century in 1845, Camer- Cameroon was what we call Cameroon now had been colonized by Germany. And at the end of World War I in the Treaty of Versailles, that territory was then taken away from Germany and split between the French and the British. 
And then after like years into the 60s, like when there were many um, independence movements in um, throughout Africa to get out of colonial rule, in 1961, Cameroon was given the option to, like the English speaking, formerly under British control, was given the option to either join the Republic of Cameroon, the French speaking section, or they could join Nigeria, which was its predominantly English speaking. But the people that were in that part of Cameroon didn't want to do either. They wanted to be independent, but they were forced basically to choose to be with this French um, majority group. So there's been an ongoing dynamic where you have a chunk of the country that's a very small minority um, under a dominant um, francophone culture and most the most recent big thing in the news that a lot of people may have seen images of was an attack on a school that was in the english-speaking region of cameroon in which seven school children were unfortunately murdered by armed men um, so that was how i became this was pinged on my radar on what was happening so yeah like we if you're listening to this today, like the elections will be going on on Sunday of December the 6th. So I hope that they don't escalate into violence. But yeah, I guess we will have to wait and see. Thank you for doing wow, that. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just about to say, yeah, thank you for doing that story and actually giving us the background because I think a lot of times uh, when we think about the elections in other places, we don't really understand the depth, you know, and fabric of what they will what they will mean uh, for the people on the ground without that historical context. So, definitely hope that there's not violence with this election on Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. And I was I was also gonna I was gonna thank you for um, the story and and give doing it in a way that gives some historical context because I think when we do when I at least for world world news I I for me personally you know it's always a struggle to contextualize it because we know our own history so well here and, and the news you know it's much easier to say oh I know this is happening now because I you know this happened then and 30 years ago 100 years ago so um yeah it, it's also important to to get yeah, to learn more about parts of the world and you know the his the legacy of colonialism that's still um affecting the people that live there um yeah it's really i think it's extremely important especially by growing up in um the west or places that are dominant by dominated by like european thinking there's a lot of propaganda and the way that the news, the dominant news media is set up is to make you kind of think that places outside of North America or Western Europe are somehow like backwards or they can't get their shit together. And the part of the story that is never highlighted is how did it get to be like that? You know, what happened? And, you know, when you see like Africa in particular, the way that these colonial powers like 
cut these boundaries between people or we're like, okay, this is a country now. You different groups have to all be together and you you are supposed to have the same national identity. Like the British literally told these people, well, we don't feel that you're strong enough to be independent. So you have, it's just extremely paternalistic and those actions have consequences. You know, like I think people might be more familiar with say like the troubles in Ireland, for example, where those people had a whole Island to themselves. They were living, you know, and then here come the Englishmen, like making, like like, causing all these divisions and bringing like, okay, well, this group is going to be under this religion. And then this other group is going to be another religion. And we still have bombings, like things happening today as a result of that conflict. So when you see, like there's similar things happening elsewhere, but I think the the real root is so obscured or is completely ignored as to, you know, these things are happening because of, you know, things that were done to them like over a hundred years ago. Or in this case, yeah. like near almost more than almost two hundred years are getting to two hundred years. That's what I mean. The fabric is just like so deep in these stories. Sometimes, you know, we feel like things are deep here, but this is deeply rooted. And, um, you know, it's important for countries to have their independence the way they need it to be for them to function. Um, Yeah. And it it doesn't have to be based off of what other like what um, what the U.S. is doing, what European countries do. You know, this we're not perfect we clearly have problems so why is that always being pushed onto other places you know right i think at one time that was a standard but now you know what is standard they i think it's super subjective to what are the needs of the people in the country and their culture and their lifestyle you know it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of situation so yeah self-determination so let's let's hope that there's not more bloodshed today as it's happening like we wish the people a lot of luck but we'll be keeping you updated on um, what's happening in Cameroon on our Facebook page and also on our Instagram and you can find our Facebook page if you google the at symbol at objection radio free BK and that's all one word no spaces at objection radio free BK our Instagram handle is again the at symbol at objection to the rule no spaces no lines no other special characters awesome thank you so much for that story jasmine um so i have an update from the station about the ecuadorian film festival in new york so this is the sixth ecuadorian film festival in new york and we are proud to announce that it will be running from december 1st through 6th this year's festival will be offered online and it's available to viewers across the u.s and ecuador on EFFNY.org. Three documentaries and two feature films will be competing for the Best Film Award Jury Prize. The Ecuadorian Film Festival attracts its audience both from the Ecuadorian communities in the tri-state area and film fans with an interest in Ecuadorian culture. The festival offers high quality films and provides a diverse outlook on this fascinating country, little known to the U.S. So to watch this year's films, please go to EFFNY.org. So in the spirit of celebrating Ecuadorian culture, 
Here is a song by Ecuadorian singer Pamela Cortez from her 2018 album Muñequita. And the title of this song is Olvidate de Mi. Fuiste de mi lado No supiste comprenderme ¿Acaso era demasiado? Olvídate de mí Nada ha pasado Los escombros del recuerdo oh, No, no reviven el pasado No, no, no Olvídate de mí Intento desgar 
be sure to put a link for the Ecuadorian Film Festival on our Facebook page. Once again, you can find that by Googling at Objection Radio Free BK with no spaces. You can also make sure to follow our Instagram page at Objection to the Rule. No spaces, no special characters. Now back to Teresa. All right, so I am now going to throw it to Emily because we definitely need some good news. What you got for us? Happy to help with that one. Um, So this good news story comes from a November 23rd New York Times article by Coral Davenport, which is a great name, uh, sidebar. Um, (laughs) But anyway, the article is titled GM Drops Its Support for Trump Climate Rollbacks and Alliance with Biden. Uh, So the article explains, quote, General Motors turned its back Monday on the Trump administration's legal fight to nullify California's strict fuel economy rules, signalizing that it was ready to work with President-elect Joseph R. Biden Jr. to reduce climate warming emissions from cars and trucks. The decision by Mary Barra, the General Motors chief executive, to withdraw her company's support for Trump administration efforts to strip California of its ability to set its own fuel efficiency standards was a striking reversal. It was also a signal that corporate America is moving on from President Trump. More specifically, it was a sign that Mr. Biden may find the auto industry amenable as he tries to reinstitute and rebuild Obama-era climate change regulations that Mr. Trump systematically dismantled at times with help of industry. So in 2019, it's a little background, uh, the Trump administration revoked, quote, the legal authority of California and other states to set tighter state restrictions. When the state sued, GM, Toyota, and Fiat Chrysler intervened on the side of the administration. Uh, however, in recent in the recent announcement, Barra from GM announced that they were withdrawing their litigation, litigation and, quote, inviting other automakers to join us. Quote, Ms. Barra's letter stopped short of backing California standards by indicating that it, uh, but indicated that she was open to aligning her company with them, joining five other auto companies, Ford, Honda, BMW, Volkswagen, and Volvo that already have. Um, and sidebar again, like Volkswagen doesn't have a great history of fuel, of fuel efficiency standards. If anyone remembers that they, um, there was a whole scandal where they were like manipulating the cars to make it seem like they had, they were more fuel efficient than they were, but I guess they've, I don't know, they've turned a corner or whatever. Who knows? Um, Anyway, quote, the president-elect has promised policies to make the United States electricity sector a net zero producer of planet warming pollutants by 2035 and to reduce total American emissions um, to zero by 2050 or to net zero, I think, by 2050. Um, To do that, virtually all cars and trucks would have to stop burning diesel and gasoline and their electric batteries would have to be charged by renewable energy sources like the wind and the sun. Uh, environmentalists applauded the move by General Motors, end quote. And again, like they applauded it, even if it's a long way to go, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. And then, you know, bye bye, Trump. <laughs> See you never. Get on, gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's anyway. good. That's good to know that, you know, there are efforts being made to restore us back to some level of, of progress yeah. uh, on such important factors, definitely. Totally. And, you know, the, the turning the tide of you know just being inevitable that the, like that those sorts of environmental movements have to start moving forward is just good to see yeah it's good to see before he was even in an auspice there's things happening <laughs> yeah 
I think that was like the theme of the show today, right? Like the possibilities. The possibilities. Yeah. 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 We don't normally think this show. I'm just being cheesy, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes, you know, things, you know, there's something in the air, zeitgeisty or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. Well, thank you so much for that good news story, Emily. That was awesome. And folks, that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Spotify, or on iTunes. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with a throwback for our final track of today. This is KRS1 with Step Into My World. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Open.